Hello, I'm Sylvia Byron, host of the Good Neighbors Committee podcast, Conversations with Community. In this series, you'll hear community voices speaking about experiences with racism in Vanderhoof, a rural community in northern British Columbia, as well as shorter, action-based podcasts with information on how to challenge your biases, what some of the language means, and how to make our community safer. Essentially, how to be a good neighbor. You can find this podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website, goodneighbors.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. Well, so my name is Colleen, and um, I've lived in Psychos for many years. Ernie is from Psychos, and we got married many years ago and raised our children basically in Psychos. I grew up in, in Nakasi, Fort St. James. When I came to Psychos, one of the things you know, that struck me was how beautiful a place it was. And, um, and so I've always really appreciated being able to live here. My name is Ernie John. I grew up partly from Saikas, but I was born in Wedgwood. Mm-hmm. I don't know if too many people that know where Wedgwood is. It's between Prince George and Vanderhoof. And um, I'm with the Frog Clan. And I crossed over from the Grouse Clan to the Frog Clan because my dad wanted me to look after the Frog Territory. So... That's the reason why I crossed over because you're always you're always with your grandmother, your grandmother's clan. And I've been here most of my life and my mom raised cattle here in Saikas years ago. I think we started in fifty-eight or something like that and we ended in nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. And she raised up to eighty head of cows. Mm-hmm. So, and we had most of the young people working here, paying time in, in the summer with the young people here in Saika. Mm-hmm. And nowadays you don't see too many people that's, um, that's uh, physical work. And I knew a feller named Gregory Rafa, and he was a pitcher for baseball. He was a pitcher for the Stony Creek Tigers. And the reason why he was a good pitcher is because he threw bales. Mm-hmm. You know, like loading up on a wagon or in a truck or whatever we had for, to deliver it home. And that one year we did 30,000 bales by hand. You don't see that anymore, you know. Nowadays you got these big round balers and one guy can put out... 200 ton a day or whatever, you know. I left home when I was 16 years old and I went up to Prince Rupert and I got to Rupert and I ran out of money so I stayed at a place called Sally Ann. I stayed there for a while and I met some people there from Haida Gwaii and then he went out fishing. He was a commercial fisherman. So he let me stay in his room, and I only had like 50 cents a day. 
And then I got a job at the cannery unloading fish from the packers that come into port. Now, um, <clears throat> they were Japanese packers, and I did not understand what they're talking about all the time, maybe. And their English is so broken up. So then I met some other people down there, and then I got a ride over to Haida Gwaii on a boat. And I got to work on uh, in a galley, washing dishes and whatnot for my fair cross. And when I got across, I have a sister there that's married to a Haida. And they got married in 1957. And when my dad and them were working up in between Prince George and Vanderhoof, they were hacking ties for the railroad. The two Haida people came over by train and asked my dad's uh, for the daughter's hand. So my dad put them to work for the winter. <laughs> I guess to see what they were like. So they stayed here in the, until the springtime. And, and later on, I went back with them, with my sister to Haidegwai, and I went to school there for one year, 57, 58. And I came home and went back to school here, and I left school in 60, in grade 5, because, you know, the reason why I was so low in the grades is that I was in the hospital most of my young life with tuberculosis and stuff, eh? so anyway, so, and then later on I worked in the logging industry and in Haida Gwaii with McMillan Bodell. I went to set and chokers to run machinery, so I stayed there. I worked in Haida Gwaii for 13 years, mm-hmm. and then I left there and went down to Vancouver Island. I worked there for two or three years for um, Rainier Canada, mm-hmm. and then after that I went through different outfits, say, to Vancouver Island, so, mm-hmm. yeah. And a commercial fish too, out of Rupert for oh. a while. Yeah. What brought you back to Vanderhoof? My mom mm-hmm. raising cattle, eh? Mm-hmm. And they had some, um, uh, had to bid on some timber here on the reserve, so in 1976, so that's what I did. Nice. Yeah, I won the timber bid, so yeah, so that's what I did. And, and help my mom with the cattle. Eh? Yeah. What's your experience been like for the two of you living in Vanderhoof or living near Vanderhoof and, and having to work in Vanderhoof lots? I never did work in Vanderhoof. No, no I was always in the bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have never worked in Vanderhoof for, you know, the mm-hmm. only people I worked for was Plateau mm-hmm. during the times, like out in the bush, mm-hmm. mostly running machinery. Mm-hmm. And for different outfits, oh. all the Fort St. James and Tacla and places like that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of camp jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience working in Vanderhoof, I was, um, <clears throat> I think I joined the Air Champion in 1980, January 1980, and I got posted to Vanderhoof. And I came as a um, back then, we were called Indian Special Constables. And when I started work here, I, I was the first um, female uh, RCMP to come to the detachment. 
So, you know, that was rather novel, I suppose, for the town. And and for me, like, I mean, I um, really, really had lots of fun in, in training. And it was a really new experience for me working as an RCMP member. And one of the things, I guess, you know, being First Nations person where we're matrilineal and we're raised... Um, there's no differentiation between uh, female and male when you're being raised. That you know, we were raised to hunt and fish and run the boat, and that my brothers were raised to you know, wash dishes. And so, um, if, you know, there's no differentiation. Boys and girls are treated equal, and so I always attributed that fact to my ability to work in the RCMP because I was the first female and there was very few females in the RCMP at that time. I was, um, I don't know, you wouldn't say comfortable, but it wasn't like, I, I never had anything to prove as it were. You know, I, um, I, I could do the job and I knew I could do the job. And so, um, you know, coming to Vanderhoof, I think it was, you ran into some, you know, people who didn't, A, think that a female should be doing, you know, a man's job, and B, that for sure, an Indigenous female shouldn't be doing the job. But I was always able to work around that. I always thought that, um, you know, racism is an education process. People, um, you know, speak from their experience and uh, I think that, you know, if they, if that's their experience, then perhaps you can open their eyes by providing them with another side to things. What would you say that going into Vanderhoof has been like and what has sort of changed over the years? Well, years ago, you know, like Vanderhoof wouldn't accept uh, us in cafes and stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know. That's just in the 60s and that's not that long ago, you know. I remember when I had my first communion, mm-hmm. and we went, we were going to go for communion breakfast at Catholic, yeah? and uh, the people in the cafe wouldn't let us in, mm-hmm. along with the priest. There was quite a bit of racism in Vanderhoof when I was growing up in the 70s and the 60s, you know. It's just the people that I know that lived there most of their life, you know. They're the ones that they don't have no racism, racism in their bones, eh? Mm-hmm. It's the people that came in mm-hmm. from back east, Ontario, and wherever, you know. They're the ones that uh, we used to have problems with, mm-hmm. you know. What kind of things have you seen shift over the years? I think it's I think it's getting a little better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's because of me, my reputation, right? Because, you know, you always want to be the best. Mm-hmm. You try to be the best in anything that you do. Anything. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is. What about you, Colleen? Mm-hmm. What have you seen shift? Um, I think that Canada as a country, really, you know, like the awareness that um, <clears throat> has been generated by the courts, by the government, you know, around Indigenous people, and um, and then more recently, all the awareness around you know, residential school findings, you know, two fifteen and Kamloops, all of those things, um, you know, have brought awareness to the country as a whole, and people uh, realize that they can no longer do, you know, business as usual, you know, and that that you know they have to take stock basically, you know, First Nations people have been 
you know, pushed and pushed and pushed. And, you know, like when you think about, you know, even when Ernie was growing up, like you were saying that he was born, you know, in Wedgwood in a tent, you know, and if you read um, his mother's story, you know, she talks about, you know, when, when they were born, they lived in a tent all winter and they could go, they, they went anywhere, like on the land freely. And then just slowly and slowly settlers came in and bought up the land and, <clears throat> and First Nations people or, um, you know, couldn't buy the land. When um, Ernie's mother was raising cattle, some land came uh, up and it was $50,000 for a lot of land. And she wanted to purchase it, but she couldn't go to the banks. First Nations people couldn't borrow from the banks. The only way that they could get money is to approach the Department of Indian Affairs. And so she went to the Department of Indian Affairs and asked to borrow the money. And they were running at the time a very successful cattle company. And the Department of Indian Affairs said, you don't need that much land and wouldn't lend her the money. And so she had no other means. It was, it was their land, you know. And then, but she was still wanting to buy it back, as it were. And so I think, like, though that's the First Nations people's history, you know, that, that, that people don't know, right? If you look at Ernie's family story, you know, like, they were very successful cattle, you know, um, operators. And the story is that the Department of Indian Affairs um, decided that, you know, their logging company, you know, they successfully bid on, on some logs that were on the reserve. Department of Indian Affairs said, no, you know, you're not going to. And then his family used all their cattle money. They sold their cattle to fight the case in court. And they won. And it didn't make a lick of difference mm -hmm. to Department of Indian Affairs. You know, they still got nothing. They ended up with nothing in the end. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, they were willing to, to sell all their cattle and use the money for a court case that, you know, that didn't make a difference. So, you know, there's lots of those kinds of stories. Um, but still, you know, like you look at how beautiful, you know, the land is and Saikas has is has a lot of, you know, beautiful land, which is, you know, nurtured and, and cared for by them. And I just think that um, people, if people came here, you know, like they, they do sometimes they come, they come in the springtime for the for the fishing derby and they love it they just absolutely love it and it's a little piece you know that that they afford themselves that they and, and they just absolutely love it and I think that you know like if they were just to take that and, and expand it a bit you know because people make judgments or they base their judgments or their decisions on assumptions and they don't even know and I remember having a long conversation with with this gentleman about, you know, relations and insights and and then I said, Well, how many times have you been there? And he'd been he lived in Vanderhoof for many, many, many years. And he was in a position where, you know, it would have would have been should have been part of his work. And I said, Well, how many times have you been to Psychas? Well, I've never been there. And I'm like, Well, pardon me. And so you know, people, it's almost like there's a wall, you know, that they that they, they they don't feel as though that they should be crossing or going through or whatever. And I don't think that the people from Psychos have ever perpetrated that sort of division. What would you like to see as, as people who have grown up 
and been here for a long time and have been in positions where you could see many things and many things change. Where do you think would be the next steps and the next shift to? For me, like climate change is real. Mm-hmm. And I just think that um, so many things that First Nations believe in and operated from a certain worldview about how you protect the land, mm-hmm. right? That, that, you know, we're not the owners of the land. We're simply the people who, you know, steward the land. And one of the, the beliefs that we have is, or one of the teachings we have, rather, is that, you know, the land cannot speak for itself, so we must speak for it. And, and so if, if you go back, 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 since time, basically, since the settlers came, there's certain things that, you know, the First Nations people, you know, were concerned about and brought forward. And there was just, all their concerns fell on deaf ears. And now, you know, you have, um, you know, you have people who are listening. And their science is proving out all of what we, what we believe. And science is, is basically on our side, as it were. And so people are beginning to, to see that. And because, you know, like always before, it was that's a nice myth. Oh, that's a nice legend. You know, all those things. And they, they never thought that we had any sort of science, as it were, behind us. And that it was just like a lovely way to, to believe things, right? And the fact that we're all connected and, and that, you know, that what you do to a tree, you do to yourself and, you know, all those things. And so as we sort of go into a warmer and warmer world and the scientists are getting alarmed and they're beginning to look and say, you know, the First Nations people, they're not, they're not so not giving us credit, but, but they are saying what we have said, they're echoing what we have said since, since forever. Indigenous people are very community-minded. The community comes first. My, my daughter, Sarah, always tells this story about a fellow who was teaching finances, and he went around to all the communities in the area, and he taught um, finances to, like, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And one of the things he was struck by was the fact that in every Indigenous community, one of the questions that they ask is, well, if you won 50 million bucks, what would you do with it? One of the things that struck him was that in Indigenous communities, he said always the first thing that anybody said about their 50 million was that they would build a home for elders or they would build you know, a community center. Non-Indigenous people would say, well, I'd get a pension plan, I'd you know, help my children, I'd buy a house, I'd buy a Cadillac. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it's just a whole different worldview, right? Mm-hmm. And as First Nations people become more and more colonized, you know, and, and we, our young people are, are losing the teachings, you know. So when you're talking about what's changing, people are coming to First Nations people understanding better that that we're not primitive by any means. And that, that you know, like that our, our worldview is, is one of real sort of complexity that, that is about, is not just about me. It's about my world, and so people are, are beginning to better understand that. And so it's kind of opening their eyes. Ernie, what would you think would be one or two things that you would like to see over the next 10 years? 
What I would like to see is my children, my grandchildren, with a better education and accepted in all society. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like, <clears throat> and that they could uh, work with a different organization, even in the community or outside the community, to better themselves, to buy land, to do whatever they want to do for progress for themselves and for their children. It's not much, but it's good enough. And I hope that maybe by having conversations and sharing conversations in your view, that maybe we can push it a little bit, that we push it. And I really just want to thank you for your time. The Good Neighbors Committee came into being more than 20 years ago in response to a desire to address racism and encourage the celebration of diversity in the community of Vanderhoof. Funding to support the work of the volunteers on the Good Neighbors Committee has come from federal programs such as Canadian Heritage, provincial programs such as Welcome BC, Organizing Against Racism and Hate, and Resilience BC, and regional grants from Northern Health and the Regional District of Balkanichaco. The Good Neighbors Committee is made up of a dedicated group of volunteers, each bringing their own experiences, backgrounds, and talents to the group. We have done community education projects using theater, visual arts, dance, cooking, newspaper articles, community surveys, playwriting, cookbooks, and more. We invite you to join us on our current project, Podcasts with a Purpose. We will share a 30-minute podcast interview with a local person sharing their experiences of what it's like to live in Vanderhoof. We will follow that interview podcast with a shorter action podcast to offer listeners tools and tips for addressing racism and celebrating diversity. We hope you will join us.